My Father, it is a joy to be able to sing of your loving kindness, the loving kindness that you have expressed to us in the giving of your Son and our Lord and the accomplishing of our salvation through your life, through your death, through your resurrection. It is your grace and your loving kindness that we trust in. And we ask you now that as we look at this great feast of the Passover and we see by your design the glory of Christ in it, that you would do for us as we sing about, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would deepen our spiritual understanding of these things, that it might increase our worship, that it might more easily be the meditation of our hearts, that your glory might be more fully reflected in our lives. We ask you for these things now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 as we move into the next section of this great gospel account of the final week of the life of Christ, indeed the final days of the life of Christ here on this earth before the crucifixion. We'll be this morning in verses 17 through 19 of Matthew 26, Matthew 26 verses 17 through 19. And the title this morning of the message is Jesus Christ, the Hope and the Glory of the Passover. Jesus Christ, the Hope and the Glory of the Passover. Now I want to introduce it this morning by noting that Christians have a unique message, and not only a unique message, but a unique testimony uh, to that message. Indeed, Christians proclaim a unique God, in other words, a God unlike any other God proclaimed in any other religion. We proclaim that God is one, but not only that God is one, but that God is three. That He is a Father, that He is a Son, and that He is the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. A mystery, and yet the revelation of God on the pages of Scripture. And ultimately in the person of Christ. We as Christians have then from God a unique message of salvation. And you have heard this, no doubt, that the religions of the world, though many, could be divided rather easily into two, those of human works, human accomplishment, and that of divine achievement. In other words, the message of Christ, the message through the Word of God, is that He alone can accomplish salvation for sinners. It is a message of grace, and it is a message of glory, it is a message of wonder, it is a message of the loving kindness of God, and it is a message that at the same time humbles the sinner because it reveals to us we can do nothing to contribute to our salvation but must trust completely in what God has done for us in Christ. And it is a message that God has borne unique witness to. It's not that God did these things in some corner of the universe as we've considered that before, but when God acts, He acts in history. He acts publicly. He acts decisively. And so He has done in His witness to the coming of Christ. He formed the nation of Israel, who by its very existence, by its prophets, by the testimony of its scriptures, containing up to the time of Christ over 1,500 years of witness to what God was going to do, and over 39 or 39 books, all of them in some way pointing to and illustrating and anticipating the coming of Christ. Yes, the entire history of the nation pointed to one event, the coming of the Son of God into the world to redeem sinners. 
one who would be a sacrifice, one who would die as a substitute for us, who would defeat death and rising from the grave, who would return as king over all the earth. And so a central testimony to this witness of God through the nation of Israel was the Passover feast. It was the Passover celebration. And so the purpose of our passage this morning in this message is to, to understand and to see God's sovereign witness to and provision of a Savior for sinners in Christ, as symbolized in the Passover. So read with me, if you will, Matthew 26, verses 17 through 19, and then we'll look at that more closely. Beginning in verse 17. Remember, this is following on the account of the betrayal of Judas. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. A simple account with profound implications. Profound implications. Notice first then Christ's perfect submission to the will of the Father. Christ's perfect submission to the will of the Father. And look back at verse 17. And let's begin by getting some context then for this this great event in the life of Christ. He says in verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread. And this again introduces one of the most profound and amazing portraits of God's sovereignty. Which is literally just dripping off every verse and every part of this account of these final days of Christ. Indeed, his entire life. And we would notice then first in these words the perfect timing of the Father. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples at the exact time of the celebration of the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. This is the time when Jesus is to be betrayed. He is to be handed over to the chief priest, then to the Roman officials, then to be crucified as an atoning death for the sin of his people. And by God's eternal and sovereign design, the establishment of the Passover over 15 or about 1,500 years earlier was all anticipating this moment, this time in the life of Christ, this moment in history, this moment in the history of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Matthew mentions here first, is a seven-day feast that followed after the celebration of the Passover meal. So after the lamb was sacrificed, after the Passover meal was shared in in the evening, then there was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, from the very beginning of God establishing this feast, these two were put together, the celebration of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so by the time you come into the New Testament... Uh, These were often referred to under the same title. So you could say the Passover, and it would really include all of that. Or you could say the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they were distinct, but they were referred to uh, together. So this was the time then of the Passover. And as you'll notice, that is the key theme throughout the remainder of these three verses. The disciples ask him where they're to eat the Passover. Jesus mentions the Passover in verse 18. In verse 19, they went to prepare the Passover meal. That is the central theme. Now, Matthew gives a rather short account of this. Mark and Luke fill out some of the details a bit more. 
they help us to understand that this Passover meal that Jesus is going to share with his disciples was indeed something that in every detail of the account is seen to be the purpose of the Father. The purpose of the Father. Matthew and, or Mark and Luke tell us that they're what Jesus did in fact send ahead of him two disciples, two disciples out of them. They went, they would find a man carrying a pitcher of water, and this man would lead them to a large and a furnished upper room. And there they would celebrate the Passover meal Jesus would with his disciples. And so they go, and so Christ marches toward all that the Father had called him to do. This is then the context of Christ going to bear our sin, going to be our sacrifice on the cross. Now, the days here are actually, the first day of the Passover meal was to be on Thursday. So when he says this, now on the first day of unleavened bread, this is in fact a Thursday afternoon. Remember, Christ will be sacrificed on Friday. So in the afternoon, they would go, they would choose the lamb On Friday evening or Thursday evening, they would sacrifice the lamb. And then on Friday, after they had been served the meal, Christ on that day would be crucified. He would be crucified. Again, every detail here demonstrating the sovereignty of God and the submission of Christ. And that's the second thing to notice here. The sovereignty of God and the submission of Christ. And those are really the the two points that stand out. The Father is directing every event. The Son is following the Father's will in perfect obedience. Now I want to notice one thing, however, before we go here. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke note that this is happening on the first day of the feast, the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or So in other words, the supper that will be recorded later is in fact the Passover meal. Is the Passover meal. We'll get to that in verses 26 and following. But John, however, on this day says that Christ in John 19, 14 says that Christ was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover. So then how are we to understand that? How are we to understand that? Well, it's rather simple, really. When John says that Christ is crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover, that term for preparation there is always used to refer to preparation for the Sabbath day. For the Sabbath day. And as I mentioned earlier, the Passover refers not only to that event, but it could also refer to the entire week, the entire week of festivities and celebration of this great moment in the life of the history of Israel. And so, John's reference, in line with the synoptics, is to be understood in this way. It's referring to the day of preparation for the special Sabbath that was on the Passover week. And so, the idea is this, that on Thursday night, Jesus was with his disciples explaining the significance of the Passover. And on Friday, he would, before all of the nation of Israel, accomplish the very substance of the Passover This, then, is the perfect sovereignty of God. Notice that, then, that God's sovereignty is is in every way demonstrating to us His affirmation of the Son and His work. And indeed, that is 
our comfort. That is, in fact, the great comfort and rock, bedrock of a Christian's hope is the sovereignty of God in, de- in control of every detail of the universe, of the nation, of our lives, all under the sovereign hand of God. And so it is here in Christ's life. It is indeed the God who, the Father who sent the Son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Christ was here because the Father had sent him. In fact, he would say this in John chapter 12. Let me just mention this to you. John chapter 12, verse 49, he says this. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Everything that Jesus did in his life was in obedience to the will of the Father. And it was the will of the Father that Christ would be here at this time to accomplish this work of salvation. This is the testimony throughout all of Scripture. Let me read to you just one more verse just to fill that out a little bit in your minds. In Galatians chapter 4, he says this. In Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that, he might, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Again, the entire ordering of the universe, the entire ordering of the events of human affairs is now coming to a culmination at this exact moment in the life of Christ by the plan of the Father. And Jesus' response reveals this. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, Go into the city and a certain man to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. He knew exactly where he was heading. He knew exactly what was coming. If you'll remember back in verse 2, he'd already said to them, You know the, that two, after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. My time is near. My time for what? My time for accomplishing the Father's will. My time for accomplishing what the Father has sent me to do. And if they were simply regular travelers, if they were simply showing up and he were to send his disciples into Jerusalem at this time, it would have been nearly impossible for them to find a place to celebrate the Passover meal. Remember, at this time, Jerusalem was swarming with pilgrims who were coming from all over the land, all over the land of Judea and beyond and well beyond that, all converging on the nation of the city of Jerusalem at the same time to go to the temple to celebrate this feast. The inns and homes would have been full. However, this was his time and the place was sovereignly prepared. And so he moves forward to that end. And Jesus is again displaying his submission to the will of the Father. And I want you just as you think about that to consider this point. That submission to the will of God, obedience to the will of God is what God requires from every human being. From every human being. If you remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You are to, in every way, reflect the reality of God's nature, the reality of God's glory in fulfilling His commands on the earth. It is our sin, it is our failure to do that that places the curse of God on us. But we cannot offer to God perfect obedience 
But at every point in the life of Christ, what we see is the one who was our substitute, who obeyed perfectly in our place. It's him who knew no sin, the spotless lamb who's going to be the spotless sacrifice. He alone is the one who is perfect as the Father is perfect. And here he's yielding to the Father's will and trusting himself to the Father's perfect plan. And what's amazing here, of course, as we consider this, is the fact that he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. Listen to what David prayed in Psalm 31. I just, I just want to get you, give you a feel for this. In Psalm 31, 15, David said this. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. How does that connect here? David is essentially saying that, God, I recognize that you have a sovereign purpose in my life. And the fact that I recognize your sovereign purpose in my life gives me a great deal of comfort. It gives me encouragement to know that nothing will befall me outside of your sovereign plan. But his particular hope by resting in the sovereign plan of God was this, his deliverance. That God would deliver him from his enemies and from those who persecute me. Christ, with an even greater sense of the sovereign will of the Father for his life, has just the opposite expectation. In fact, Christ could say at this time, rephrasing the words of David, My times are in your hand. I yield to your deliverance deliverance of me into the hands of my enemies and into the hands of those who will persecute me. Perfect submission. Perfect submission. Now the fact is, interestingly, Jesus had celebrated the Passover many times in his life. Many times in his life. As a matter of fact, the first record that we have is in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. And it says there that, that Mary and Joseph regularly went up to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And it is, of course, at that time in Luke chapter 2 that we also have recorded for us where Jesus shows an awareness of his identity, possibly an awareness of his mission. When he says that he was in his father's house as he stayed behind in the temple to ask questions of the Jewish leaders and display, even at that young age, a unique insight into the will of God. He'd gone to the Passover many times. He'd seen the lamb sacrificed many times. Only this time he knew he would not bring a sacrifice, but he would in fact be that sacrifice that God had ordained. And so here we have the context of Christ and the the example of Christ as he enters into these final days. But here's what I want us to spend most of our time on is this. God's enduring witness to his son and redemption in the Passover. His enduring witness to his son and the redemption that he would accomplish in the Passover. And in order to understand the significance of this, we have then to go back and get some idea of what the the practice and the significance of the Passover was in the history of Israel. So turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12, if you would. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to use this as a launching point. We'll go to a few other places, but here in Exodus 12 is where God establishes the Passover for his people. Exodus chapter 12. And I want to answer three questions then about the Passover. And the first is this, what is the Passover? What is the Passover? 
Well, generally it is this. It is the first and central feast of the nation of Israel that marks the beginning of the nation when God delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. It is when he delivered them and identified them as a nation over whom he would be their God, over whom he would reveal himself or to whom he would reveal himself. Now, while there's some discussion regarding the precise meaning of the term, the essential reality behind the Passover is this, that God passed over his people Israel to not destroy their firstborn among all those in Egypt because of the blood that they put on their doorpost. Now, let's look at that, just consider that a little more closely. And I just want to get an idea here of what the actual meal consisted of. What did the actual... A celebration consists of. Look at verse 2. He says of Exodus 12. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Later in chapter 13. He identified this as the month of Abib. It means the, the idea is the, of an ear month. It had to do with the idea of harvest. The time of harvest among the nation of Israel. It meant, it meant when the grain was in the ear of wheat. It corresponds roughly to our month of April. And just as a point of interest, after the exile, after they returned back into the land, this month of Abib was actually referred to as the month of Nisan. Month of Nisan. Month of Nisan. It's the same month. It's the same time period. And here then, it was to be this month. And note significantly that it was to be a beginning of the year for them. In other words, it was to mark a distinct time in the spiritual life and identity of the nation of Israel. According to Exodus 12, it was on the 10th of the month, the month of Abib, the Israelites were to go and they were to get a lamb, a lamb unblemished in verse 5, a male, a year old, one without defect, one without spot, One that was perfect and able to be sacrificed and offered to God. This lamb was then to go into the home of that family. It was to live with them for approximately four days or for four days. And then on the 14th of that month, at twilight, it was to be slaughtered. Its blood collected and poured into a basin. And then a piece of hyssop dipped into that basin with the blood and spread onto the two doorposts of the Israelites' house. And when God passed through the land, as we mentioned, to destroy the firstborn, he would pass over the house with the blood on its post. Look at verse 12. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this was, of course, the final plague that God brought onto the land in his deliverance of his people from Egypt. They were to eat this meal in the house, not outside of the house. In verse 8, it was a meal to be roasted with fire and then eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It was, in verse 10, to be totally consumed. No part of it was to be left over for the following day. It was to be eaten in haste, in verse 11, with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And all of this was a picture of both the bitterness of their bondage and the suddenness of God's deliverance 
hopeless of them. The quickness and the haste at which God would act to deliver them from their oppressors. Now later in Deuteronomy 16, 1-7, we won't turn there, but God tweaked the promise a little bit. And remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' message to the land of Israel, the second generation that's going to enter into the land of promise under the leadership of Joshua. And soon after that, God was eventually going to establish a place, Deuteronomy 16 says, where his name would dwell. This is a reference anticipating Jerusalem and the tabernacle's presence there later and ultimately the temple. And once that was their situation, then this feast was uh, even more to be specifically designed as a national feast. And I mean that in this way. Once they were in the land, then they would all converge on one place. They would not sacrifice the lamb in their homes, but it would now take place in the temple, in the temple area. The place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. After that point, once they were in the temple, the sacrificial lamb would be brought there. It would be slaughtered with legs unbroken. The priest would then gather its blood into two basins, a gold basin and another other priest in a silver basin. And that blood would then be placed on the base of the altar. The animal was skinned, its fat and its entrails burned. And then the rest of the lamb was then given back to the worshiper who carried it home to prepare the Passover feast and the Passover meal with his family. As a matter of fact, you don't turn there, but in Mark 14 and Luke 22, they both note that while this was taking place, that Jesus was sending them out to find a place to be prepared. It was during the time that the lambs were being sacrificed. They were being sacrificed in the afternoon. The meal was eaten in the evening later with the family. Now, this new command to take it to the temple increased the importance of the Passover as a symbol of national identity. Indeed, it was a time when all of those who identified with the name of the God of Israel, particularly, of course, the Jews, would come and acknowledge him as their king, acknowledge him as their ruler, acknowledge him as their redeemer. It was a demonstration of their trust and their submission to him as their God. And it was a massive picture. You can, as we've mentioned before, there were as many possibly as one million to three million people in Jerusalem at that time. It was absolutely Packed. Now, what is the significance of the Passover? What is the significance of the Passover? And that's really the question to ask. Let me note to you at least four, four important things to recognize in the significance of the Passover. And as I give these, of course, you are also to be thinking of God's accomplishment of his redemption in Christ. First is this. The Passover marked the birth of the nation of Israel and God's faithfulness to his promise. It marked the birth of the nation of Israel. If you'll remember, when God brought Israel into the land, there were only a little over 70 people that came into the land of Israel. Joseph went first, and then the rest of his family followed after him. It was a relatively small number. Now they are leaving when they leave Egypt. Exodus 12, 37 says there were about 600,000 men on foot besides children. And so if you include women, children, and the men under 20, the actual number is closer really to probably about 3 million, possibly more, and then all of the stuff. So they came in there, this little tiny band of just over 70 people, and they're leaving as this great herd, this great swarm. Indeed, and this is the important point, as a nation, as a nation. So this then is fulfillment of God's Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. 
that he would give him many descendants, that he would bring them to a land. The covenant he confirmed in chapter 15 of Genesis when God passed through the sacrifices that Abraham had laid out, thus confirming and assuring that God would achieve and accomplish his will and his promise to Abraham. So it's a testimony to God's faithfulness. It is the birth of the nation. It is God declaring before the world that he is the God of Israel. Secondly, the Passover declares not only the birth of Israel as a nation, but it declares that God, as the God of Israel, is the only true God. Declares that God, the God of Israel, is the only true God. This is why Scripture begins with the account of creation. God is one. God is the one who has created all things. He alone is to be worshipped. Israel needed to understand that, and they needed proof of that, and not only Israel, but all of the watching world. In fact, one reason why God let his people be enslaved for over 400 years was so that in their deliverance, he might declare his name to his people first, and then to all of the nations. Just get a feel for this. Just listen to some of God's testimony on this. Look what he says in verse 12 of Exodus 12. We just read it. He says, I will go through the land, look at the end, and against all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And that was the point for them to know, I am the Lord. Go back to chapter 6, verse 2. Chapter 6, verse 2. Abraham goes to Pharaoh with a message And this is the message that I am the Lord. I am the one who has established my covenant with your fathers. I am the one who will accomplish all that I have promised. Verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And listen, I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession I am the Lord. I am the Lord, and none other is the Lord. Verse 29, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. I am the Lord. Verse 5 of chapter 7, why did he do this? So the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretched out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. In verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and so forth. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there. Why? In order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. That you might know that I am the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 2. What are they to tell the generations to come? 
as they think about this great feast and God's work of deliverance. He says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. This is the point. He is establishing his name as alone who is God. He is executing judgments on the gods of Egypt that they might know that these are not gods, but I am your God. The God who stands over all of the idols of the lands is the God who created all things and is the God who is delivering you. So in this act of deliverance culminating in the Passover, God is declaring that he alone is God, he alone is to be worshipped, and he alone is able to save. He's also declaring this, that he alone has the right over life and death. Note the third point. First was that he's identifying the birth of the nation of Israel. He's identifying that he alone is God. And thirdly, the Passover is demonstrating this, the nature of God and the need of man. Namely, that God alone is the judge. God alone is the judge. Think about this. The final plague that God sent on the land of Egypt was one of the most devastating and the most humbling of all of the plagues. That's why it came last. It was, a, it was a culmination of all of the other plagues that he had sent. The other plagues displayed his sovereignty over creation, but this plague displayed his right over all human life. He is the one who can give life, and that he is the one who can take away life. Absolutely humbling. But think about this. Think about this. Consider. It says something even more than that. Or it says something with that. Not only is God the one who has the right to take away life. He is the one who has the right to give life. This celebration, this very event was a reminder of this reality. Death hangs over all men. Death hangs over all men. The wages of sin is death, the New Testament would say. The wages of sin is death. And it was a reminder that, look, all of you are under this sentence of death. This indeed was not the first time that this has been clear. Genesis 6, 5, God situated that point, didn't he? When he sent a flood and he destroyed everybody who was on the face of the earth except Noah. Except Noah. It says in verse 12 of Genesis 6 or 11, The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh flesh had corrupted their way. Verse 17, I, even I, the Lord, in bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life. And guess what? God has the right to do that. He has the right to do that because He is God He sent a flood. He destroyed the world. This is not a a, a one-time reminder that God is giving to them and giving to us. That the reality of the sentence of death hangs over all men by nature. By nature. God would warn of this throughout that he is the judge of all the earth. We've covered this before. He's really going to show it. Again, not only on a nation, but on the whole world. Listen to Revelation eleven eighteen, 18. And the, na- 
The nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. This is a reminder of the reality of sin. This is a reminder of the reality of sin and that death was over all of them. It's over all men who have sinned. God's killing of the firstborn is a reminder of his right to execute the sentence of death, not only physical, but eternal. God is the one who created. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who can take life away. And the sentence of death is over all. Beloved, that's just a reality. That's just a reality. And these kind of things that God does reminds us of that. It gives us a proper biblical worldview so that when we see the nations around us and when we see the world we live in, there is this testimony that the wrath of God abides on all men. This is not something that God is silent about. He doesn't whisper it. He proclaims it. He declares it loudly so that men might know. John 3, 36, the one who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Luke 13, Lord, what about these Galileans that were killed? And he says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. God is emphasizing this point that we would look and understand the reality, the condition that we, by nature, are reside under. And beloved, this is true not only of the Egyptians, but it is true of the Israelites. They were just as guilty and deserving of destruction as the Egyptians. In fact, God would destroy that whole generation later because of their unbelief. It was a reminder not only to the Egyptians, but it was also a reminder to Israel that, look, Israel, you are under the same sentence of death as Egypt is. But I'm providing something for you to escape that. And he says the same thing to us as the church. Who was Ephesians 2 written to? The church. What did he say? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you used to walk according to the course of the world. The prince of the power of air. The the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience. He says later, you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Salvation begins with understanding that. With acknowledging and believing this reality. And the Passover and what God is accomplishing here was to be and was in itself a reminder that the greatest need that you have, Israel, the greatest need that you have, Newtown Bible Church, mankind, is the need of a Savior. Deliverance from the guilt of sin. This is the clear message of the death of the firstborn and the redemption of the firstborn by sacrifice that he would mention later in Exodus 13. It's the message of Scripture. You and I do not need salvation from bad circumstances, from bad self-image, from bad feelings, from a bad marriage, from a bum deal in life. The message is that we need a Savior from sin, from sin, from God's just wrath on our sin and our guilt. And that is the message loud and clear to us and to Israel. It also reveals this, that God alone is the Savior of men. 
that God alone is the Savior of men. And this really is the true glory of the Passover and of the gospel and all of the revelation of Scripture. Namely this, God saves sinners through his own accomplishment of redemption. That's really the message. From Genesis all the way to Revelation and everything in between is the message that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. The message is that he alone is God, he alone is judge, but he alone is the Savior. Remember that Israel was not the most righteous of the nations. In fact, the prophets often excoriated them for being even worse than the nations that surrounded them. And doubly culpable because they had the revelation of God. They had the privileges of God not to be that way. And yet they would fall into sins even worse than the surrounding nations. It wasn't that Israel was more righteous. It was that God sovereignly chose them to reveal his will. That is what set them apart, not them. God was through them reminding the world that he is God and he is Savior. And he is the one who saves all. Remember Jonah? He didn't want to believe that. He went out. He was upset that God was a Savior to all of the world as if Israel had some particular privilege. Christians act like that sometimes. I hope that's not you. We do that when we pass judgment and we criticize and we look at sinners as the enemy we're acting just like Jonah did rather than realizing God is their savior in the same way that he is our savior listen to Isaiah 43:11 let me just read some of these passages to you he's addressing Israel who's uh, at this point uh, just being delivered from the captivity and being delivered from the captivity of their exile in Babylon excuse me the nation of Judah primarily He says this, though, in verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared, and I have saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. Verse 13. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver. Out of my hand, I act, and who can reverse it? Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no God beside me? Who is this God? A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. God alone. Listen to Isaiah 49, 26. He says this. He says, I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know, what? That I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God is a Redeemer. God is a Savior, and God alone is. Listen to one more verse in Hosea. In Hosea chapter 13. Listen to this. Hosea 13, 4, he says, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. That was the point. That was the point for him to say, Israel, not, and not only to Israel, but through Israel to all of the world, to us, to say, God alone is the one who saves he alone is the one who provides the sacrifice. 
That was the point of the blood. It symbolized the death of the lamb. And that death of the lamb is what spared them from the death of their firstborn. He provided a substitute. Stephen Charnock, an old Puritan writer, says this. In Christ crucified, he says this. To have anyone die for us implies that we had merited death ourselves. To have anyone die for us shows that we merit death ourselves. So the very fact that the entire identity and worship of the nation required a sacrifice, fast forward that to the very fact that Christ had to die shows that we deserve death. That was the point. The death of the Lamb was a clear reminder that they themselves deserved death, but that the sentence due them fell on the blameless. It fell on a lamb. Of course, that couldn't be the final sacrifice. They knew that. David prayed, you do not delight in sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, there is a reminder of sins year by year in the sacrifices, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But God had established for them at that time a substitute centered on the slaughter of a lamb, whose blood was what satisfied And removed God's destruction of their firstborn. And in fact, there were non-Israelites who joined themselves to Israel in verse 38 of Exodus 12. It was indeed a message to all of them that God is the one who saves. God is the one who saves. It is a message to us. And of course, that was demonstrated many times in the history of the nation of Israel. You had Rahab as soon as they went in to conquer the land. In the line of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Ruth, the Moabite, who in fact was in the line of the great king of David. In the line of the genealogy of Christ himself. This was a message that we need to hear. That God is a savior of men. Let me just point out one verse to you here. In Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But after God has declared this great deliverance that he brought in Christ, the one he publicly displayed so that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He says this, and this was the message. This was the message that was constantly to be proclaimed through the feast, through the Passover. He says this in verse 29, or is God, uh, Romans chapter 3, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. It's the same message. There is one God. There is one creator. There is one Lord. There is one judge. There is one Savior. For them it was the Lamb. For all men it is the death of Christ. It is the death of Christ. And it shows one final thing here. And I want to move quickly as we prepare our hearts for the table. At Passover, it shows this, that God requires faith from men. And I'll just make this point briefly. Faith is always the instrument through which God grants the reality of his signs and the reality of his promises. Faith is always the instrument through which God grants the reality, the substance of his faith and his promises. Remember, Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
It was through faith. Abraham stands as an example of faith, of trusting in the promises of God. And it is through that faith, which is itself a gift of God, that man enjoys the privileges and the benefits of all that God accomplishes for his people. That's what he does. Listen to Hebrews eleven twenty eight. Just listen. Just for time's sake, don't turn there. Hebrews 11, you remember, is the great hall of faith, the great example beginning all the way back from Abel in verse 4 of God's, God's accomplishing and, and giving his promises to his people who responded in faith. Listen to what he says in verse 28, referring to Moses. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. It was by faith. God had provided for them a substitute. God had given to them instructions. But what he required from them was faith that acted on his command. The sheer fact of being a Jew did not spare them. It was that they acted on God's word in faith. Their faith in God's word is what moved them to obey. And their obedience is what demonstrated their faith. And the same it is with us. It is the reality of faith in you that moves you to obey the commandments of God. And it is in that obedience to the commandments of God that demonstrates the reality of your faith. As James says, faith without works is dead. So they heard God's word. They heard the message and the instruction from Moses. And they responded in faith. And it was their faith that followed those instructions that slaughtered the lamb, that put it on the doorpost, through which God spared them the destruction of the firstborn. It is the message to us. And we've looked that, look, the faith that they demonstrated there, for many of them, was not a real faith. We've looked at that in the life of Judas. We're going to see this again and again, particularly as we go through these last days in the life of Christ. So it was with that nation. Yes, they demonstrated a level of faith. They demonstrated what was required of them for them not to lose their firstborn. But the reality is that faith didn't really, for most of the nation, penetrate deep down into their heart. They were kind of like the soils of Matthew 13. When God was going to deliver them and do this great thing, they received the word with joy. But then the whole history after that is that as soon as trial came, as soon as persecution came, they turned away from the Lord. They grumbled in their heart. Hebrews 3 says he was angry with that generation for 40 years who saw his works. But nonetheless, God is holding out a promise God holds out his promise and he requires faith. And the Passover reminds us of that. All of God's word reminds us of that. That God has provided a savior, but we must respond in faith. We must turn to him. Now, why did God establish it as part of the Israelite religion? Why did he establish it as a part of the Israelite religion? Well, a regular part of their religion were feasts, were reminders of who God is and what he had done. This Passover was to be celebrated every year throughout their history. And why? For this reason, to remember what God did. To remember what God did. We as human beings are very apt to forget no matter how significant the event. No matter how significant the event. And remembering is the key to the life of God's people. Remembering. Remembering what God is, who He is, what He has done. Listen to Second Peter. 
You're familiar with this, but Peter writes to them and he says, look, as he's writing to this church, he says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and you have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear. And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. It's not that as believers that we're always learning new things. It is that we need to always be reminded of the things we already know. This is why scripture must be the daily diet of the people of God. The attending of corporate worship. The attending of the Lord's Supper which we have this morning. To constantly be exposed to the word of God. Not to always be learning something new. But to be reminded of the things we've already learned but forgotten or forgotten its importance. Have you ever spoken to someone who maybe dismissed a sermon or was not impacted. Or something that you shared with them with this kind of dismissive remark. I already knew that. I already knew that. Let me tell you, when somebody says that or if you say that, that's scary. That's scary. That's a level of arrogance and a level of pride that cuts yourself off from the promises of God. We constantly need to be reminded. Why did he establish that? Why does he establish for us the Lord's table that we are going to remember this morning? It's because we need to be constantly reminded. Every day you have things that are vying for your affections and for your attention. And this is a reminder of who God is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. It is a reminder that our salvation and our identity is wrapped in historical reality. I might have to save some of this for the Lord's Supper. We need to be ready and prepare. But let me make these final two points briefly. It grounds our faith in historical reality. In other words, the feast for them and the supper for us, it provides a straight line, a rope that tethers us to this historical event in the past. An an unbroken chain to all of the events that Christ or God accomplished in salvation. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, even as they did on this faithful day, During this feast, we should place ourselves in the very room where Christ is. We should, when we hear the words repeated that Christ said, hear them freshly in our own ears as if we were listening to the voice of Christ himself. We should sit together as if we were there with the disciples seated with him around that table as he spoke. And in so doing, remember the reality of his death. Remember the reality of his resurrection. Remember and think of his return. We are to remember. The point was that we would remember, that they would remember, and that we would remember who God is. And that it is grounded in the work that God has done in history, through a people, in real time. And it's our, it's our rope, it's a chain, it's the thing that we hold on to that attaches us to those events. And it was a knowledge of God that was to be passed down through their generations. Here's the final point, and this will take us into the table. This will take us into the table. That the point of the Passover was to give hope for the future. Hope for the future. It anticipated the final sacrifice. And beloved, again, as I had mentioned, that hope is essential to us as a people of God. 
It's essential to us as a people of God. And all of the promises of God that he gives us are to instill in us hope, confidence, certainty of everything that God said he would do. It's essential for us to find strength, courage, patience, steadfastness, to be reminded to be obedient and trusting in trial, to follow him. Hope is a key element of faith, and the Passover in this table is a symbol of hope and God's compassion to his people. It was to them a reminder that God would send a Savior. It is to us in the table a reminder that God has sent the Savior, that he has done what he promised. God's perfect redemption through the sacrifice of Christ is what it points to. This was the announcement of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was announced to the nation of Israel and everything after his public announcement to the nation of Israel was to authenticate the reality of what was announced, namely that he is the Messiah, the kingdom of God has come, that he is, as John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had come to deliver his people. The entire ministry was to demonstrate the reality of the substance of the promise of the Passover. The Lord's table is for us a reminder that God has done it. He has accomplished it. That is the significance of Matthew 26, 17 through 19. The Passover is here. The Savior is here. He has come to lay down his life. He has, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he is our Passover sacrifice. He is our Passover sacrifice. Christ has provided the provision of escape. He is the one who would be the lamb who was slaughtered, not as an animal, but as the incarnate Son of God. And there is salvation in no one else. I happened to have two conversations this week uh, that related to this. Namely, it was with those who, who kind of treated God as we all run into this. The kind of treats God as this, hey, as God is over, as long as you're talking about God or doing something with God, that's got to be a good thing. So whether you go to the Catholic church, you go to a Protestant church, whether you go to a Jewish mosque, whether you go to a Jewish synagogue or a Muslim mosque, as long as God's there, all of these are possible options. They're all viable options. But the reality, again, and the uniqueness of the message is they are not viable options. God has provided a Savior. He's not done it in a corner. He's done it for all of the world to see. And he's reminded us of it here in this table. And it's striking that against the dead religion of the Pharisaical Judaism that meticulously kept the form of the sacrifice, they were in doing so at the same time rejecting the very one it pointed to. And so as we come into this table, examine your heart. It may be that some here who hold to the form of Christianity and religion and taking the communion, like the Jews who are celebrating the Passover, don't know the reality of it. Don't know the substance of it in faith. But for those of us who do, we know that we deserve God's judgment. We know that Christ is the sacrifice, is the substitute that stood in our place. The Spirit has welled up in us not only faith in Christ, but a desire to walk with Him and to love Him. And to walk righteously in this world. This isn't a time of worship. It's a time of refreshment. It's a time to be renewed in our faith and our commitment to him. So prepare your hearts. And then the men will pass out the elements for us. And I think Danielle will play. So just prepare your hearts as the men give us the bread and the cup.